Warning, the following podcast has some foul language. You may wish to earmuff the impressionable. It's Monday, May 2nd, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And The Gist brings you a half hour of current events, news analysis, and media criticism. If you would like to fill the next 23 and a half hours between the end of this program and the start of the next gist, you may wish to read Nicholas Confessori's 20,000 word article or series of articles in the New York Times about Tucker Carlson. This work clocks in longer than the books of Joshua, John, or Job with a far less sympathetic main character than the latter. This is the sort of series that gets called exhaustive as a compliment, and it was thorough, but it just made me aware of how much I knew about Tucker Carlson without really thinking to ever find out about Tucker Carlson. I've never gone out of my way to watch Tucker Carlson. I can literally say I've never turned on the TV and said, let's check out that Tucker Carlson, unless it was for a work project. Yet I know almost everything that was reported in the New York Times. I mean, there were a couple of fine details about which reporter from the Daily Caller, Tucker's old journalism project, which of them now interacted with white supremacists. That was new. But for the most part, I was weirdly and perhaps disturbingly well aware of much of the Tucker Carlson bio and oeuvre. There is another workout now by New York Times journalists, uh, Martin and Burns, that's getting a lot of attention. The book, This Will Not Pass. That book is dominating the conversation by taking a book and parceling out segments to act like news articles. This Tucker piece was a series of long news articles that really wanted to act like a book. This is the Tucker Carlson box set. The people who follow Tucker closely will be aware of most of the irresponsible statements. The people who don't care about the irresponsible statements will not want to buy the box set. But to be fair, there are some anecdotes uh, from former Fox journalists who put their name on the record, which is great actual journalists who objected to Tucker in-house, and they mostly paid the price. Except in an opportunity cost sense, you can't say that this work detracts from the public good, doesn't have any mistakes that I see, and it doesn't whiff when it comes to naming the many, many unfair, inaccurate, and incendiary things that Tucker Carlson has said. But I think it does make a mistake about Tucker's uniqueness. The piece positions Tucker as singularly terrible. Possibly, this is a quote, the most racist show in cable history. In fact, I don't even think it's the most racist show between 7 p.m. and 10 p.m. on the Fox News Network. Jesse Waters is a nasty, unfair bloviator. That's the hour before Tucker. Two hours after Tucker, there's Sean Hannity, a thuggish goon who is so stupidly pro-Trump that Seb Gorka watches and says, give it a rest, buddy. Laura Ingram is also in that primetime block, a thoroughly unfair TV host, though I have interviewed her and caught her out in hypocrisies and false equivalencies. And remember, the man Tucker took over for, Bill O'Reilly, was pretty much the five-year pre-Trump earlier version of Tucker, but with a sideline as a sexual harassment machine. So in a sentence, people don't hold backwards frightened, cruel, inaccurate beliefs because Tucker Carlson gave them those opinions, Tucker Carlson trades in those ugly opinions because Americans hold those beliefs. He is a salesman gleefully serving the interests of corporate. 
Millions of Americans love Tucker because the rest of the news doesn't speak to the mindset they already had. And Tucker is just cleverer at what he does than his dim-witted Fox peers. But yes, the Tucker Carlson show is not a force for good. That almost 3 million people or less than 1% of the U.S. population watches is insalubrious, but also not inexplicable. Want to know a truth you won't get in the article? Tucker is not the most popular show on Fox. That is The Five, a panel discussion where four conservatives talk over one liberal, which just goes to show you if Tucker Carlson didn't exist, Lachlan Murdoch would find the need to invent him in four separate lower paid pieces. On the show today, I spiel about a San Francisco teacher who thought she'd bring a lesson alive with a bowl of cotton. Bad idea. But first, Benjamin Applebaum is the New York Times editorial board's lead writer on economic issues and business issues. A year ago, last February, he wrote a piece saying the U.S. was way too worried about the risk of inflation, calling that fear, quote, a tired refrain, but we live in an era of anemic inflation and changes in the economic landscape since the 70s have significantly reduced the chances of a revival. He followed up by tweets blaming the boomers on this obsession. To his credit, Benjamin Applebaum came on the gist, admitted some mistakes, and engaged in an exercise in accountability and a little bit of output gaps. Benjamin Applebaum, up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of the Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Benjamin Applebaum is the lead writer on business and economics for the editorial board of the New York Times. He was the Washington correspondent covering the Fed for the Times. He is the author of The Economist's Hour, False Profits, Free Markets, and the Fracture of Society. That book brought him on the gist for a lovely conversation. I hope it laid the grounds for this one, which is going to be slightly more contentious because I was going through Twitter and found some of his old opinions, including a, an essay in the New York Times, Inflation Isn't Lurking Around the Corner, This Isn't the 1970s. This was written in February of 2001. So two months after that essay was written, inflation doubled. Then a year later, it doubled again. It's now 8.5%. It was at 1.7% at the time of his writing. I wanted to check back in with the gracious Mr. Applebaum, or at least gracious as this conversation begins, gracious enough to join me and talk about his column and, I guess, apologize to all of us, right? I was wrong. I mean, there's no other way to say it. I was wrong. <laughs> well, let's figure out why. Um I have read, I think, most of your work about inflation, not counting every time you chronicled a uh, Fed nominee who had some thoughts on it. And I have seen a through line, which is that you have regarded fears of inflation as one of the most pernicious things among the economist class that you criticize. Is that about right? Yeah, you know, I think that we had this sort of, uh, you know, boy who cried wolf phenomenon for a lot of years where economists who were scarred by the experience of the 1970s were constantly warning us that we were about to live through those years again. Uh, and so, you know, for much of my professional life, it was a story of economists insisting that inflation was about to spike uh, and then uh, nothing happening. That, that had been the narrative until, uh, you know, two years ago. Right. So the thing about the boy who cried wolf is it's not that wolves didn't exist. It's that, as you say, they clamored on about something that didn't happen. Had you become convinced that not only would inflation pro or hyperinflation probably not happen, but that it wouldn't be that terrible a thing if a, a lot of inflation were to occur? So I think the question of what exactly inflation does to the economy is still a really complicated one. I mean, people obviously hate it, right? People are furious right now that we're experiencing high inflation. The question of, you know, what that is actually meant in economic terms gets really complicated. Uh, inflation for some people can reduce their debts. Uh, for others, it means that, uh, you know, the, the loans they made are worth less or their wages are not keeping up with prices. It has really complicated economic effects. Uh, and we're seeing that play out across the economy right now. Yeah. So going back to your book, you talked uh, a bunch about inflation in the 70s. I'll quote from some of it. Policymakers had, this was in the 70s, tolerated inflation because the cure was held to be more painful than the disease. Wages had climbed roughly as fast as prices during the 1970s, preserving the purchasing power of the typical household. Most Americans were borrowers more than lenders. Homeownership rose during the 1970s. Indeed, in 1978, the share of Americans who owned a home was higher than in 2018, just about the time you wrote the book. Nobody liked inflation, but the idea of driving the economy into a recession seemed like unnecessarily strong medicine. It, quote, amputates the hand to relieve the hangnail, said the Keynesian economist Joseph Menarek. Um, but Americans were losing patience with, patience with inflation. And then you talk about a bread salesman who was complaining to a reporter in 1978 that he 
could no longer buy a home, but he didn't realize that his income had outstripped inflation by 14%. But it does seem like your conclusion about inflation was that this period of hyperinflation in the 1970s that scarred so many people who lived through it, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe we were overreacting to it if we had just looked at it from a different and not rich guy down perspective? I still think that. I think the psychology of inflation is fascinating. You know, people tend to think of when they get a wage increase, they tend to think of it as their just desserts. When prices go up, they feel like it's an outrage, right? So, you know, I think the psychology of this is really interesting. And and I think if you look back at the 70s, and you ask, you know, what actually happened in economic terms and did we respond to it appropriately? We had a big inflation problem. People hated it. And the Federal Reserve crashed the economy to get rid of it. Uh, and, you know, if you're a median American worker, your wages have never recovered from that shock. We are we are now, you know, decades later uh, and and the economy in some ways remains scarred by the Fed's decision uh, to shut everything down to get rid of inflation. What were their benefits? Absolutely. Uh, getting rid of inflation had a lot of important consequences for the economy, uh, and, and many of them were beneficial. But but we shouldn't lose sight of the cost of uh, treating that particular disease. It was expensive. So there are a couple things going on, and I want to disaggregate them. It might have been true that the cure um, raising interest rates to extremely high heights, which Volcker did, crashing the economy... Um, in order to get inflation under control, sort of like, uh, you know, chemotherapy, right? It puts the body through incredible stress, but you hope that it comes out fine on the other side. That's one issue, and America isn't there yet. But the issue of extremely high inflation, all the economists I look at now, the good ones, the bad ones, the ones you like, the ones you don't, we'll talk about just how regressive it is. And it's not even so much perception. It really is terribly affecting the living conditions of Americans. Wouldn't Even if people who hold notes and people who are borrowing are affected differently, in general, this eight and a half percent inflation, even if it doesn't come with um, some huge cure that's the amputation to the hangnail, even if it doesn't come with that, wouldn't you say that it's really a pernicious thing to Americans? Absolutely. I mean, let's let's just be clear about this. Inflation as such is bad. Nobody likes inflation. Nobody wants inflation. Well, to, the the, choice, to the point, it, to this point, but, right? Not but to yeah, like, uh, No, yeah. no, absolutely. But if the choice is between inflation and not inflation, you definitely want to go with not inflation every time. It's hurting people. It absolutely is. The two questions that you need to come to, though, are first, how did we get here? Like, why are we having this inflation? Uh, and, and part of the answer to that is that the government engaged in this you know, massive rescue campaign to spare Americans from the economic pain caused by the coronavirus pandemic. And so you need to consider, you know, was that effective? Was that worth it, even if inflation is part of the price? Uh, and the other question is, what is the cost of getting rid of inflation? And so, you know, in isolation, if you can just choose between having inflation and not having inflation, of course, every time you want to choose not having inflation. But if you could choose between a $1.9 billion rescue package and a $1.1 billion rescue package, I would submit, and more pertinently, Jason Furman would submit that maybe the 1.1 was better. He was worried about inflation beforehand. He definitely said, and this is former Obama economic, I think chairman of the uh, Council of uh, Economists. He was the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under right, Obama. Right. Yeah. So Furman, Furman was saying at the time, if he had a vote on it, he'd vote up on the 1.9 billion. But he was really worried that, you know, some of these effects would stop 
cutting the unemployment rate and would just start raising inflation. And today he says, you know, that's exactly what happened. It was too big a package and the concerns were valid, not just in retrospect, but people were raising these concerns at the time. And from reading your essay, you weren't too concerned about these concerns. I mean, that's right. I mean, this gets back to where we started, which is what was I wrong about? And and one of the big things I was wrong about is that I was far too cavalier about the size of uh, the Biden administration's stimulus or rescue package. I, I didn't think that, you know, going too big would have uh, these consequences. Uh, and, and you're right. There were people who did uh, correctly predict that, that the package was too large. And in particular, it's not just the size of it. One of the things that the Democrats did as a political calculation in that package was they gave out money to everybody. They gave out a lot of money to people, irrespective of whether or not people needed that money. So even if you didn't lose your job, even if you were still making the same amount of money and staying at home and not spending any money on commuting or vacations or restaurants, uh, you still got a stimulus check. And so a lot of people ended up with money in their hands uh, that they didn't need. As a political matter, I thought that that, you know, had some real logic to it. But it turns out that it was a really expensive decision for us economically, because I don't think there's any doubt that part of what uh, has caused this inflation uh, was was pumping too much money out into the economy uh, at that point in the pandemic. And people like Furman, who uh, warned us about that and predicted that, I mean, listen, they 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 were right and uh, they should take a victory lap. Right. So I want to go back and I wonder if you've gone back and interrogated your thinking methods at the time. I have some theories, but that's my first question. You are the lead writer on business and economics. We turn to you to be the learned voice. When you get it wrong, it's good that you admit you got it wrong. And yet at the same time, we want you to say, okay, how could I get it right the next time? So what do you think about that? Have you engaged in that um, undertaking? I mean, absolutely. It, I, I don't take this at all lightly. You know, if, if I write a piece like that and and I'm making an argument and I think it's an important argument and it turns out to be completely wrong, uh, you obviously need to go back and, and understand what went wrong. So I, I've spent a lot of time doing that, frankly. Uh, listen, I, I think there's a couple of different answers. Part of my job is to rely on experts. I go out there and I talk to people and I try to get a sense of, you know, what smart people who, who study these issues are thinking. Uh, and and the fact is that Jason Furman, who was absolutely correct, was also in a minority at that time. Most economists uh, did not think that that package was going to have uh, inflationary consequences, certainly on the scale that that it turned out to have. Uh, and and the reason they didn't think that was because we had been in this extended period in which the Fed couldn't even get as much inflation as it wanted. We were living in a time in which uh, inflation seemed permanently low, uh, and not just in the United States, but around the world. And people looked at that and said, basically, like, listen, we've been so successful in anchoring expectations about inflation, meaning convincing people that inflation isn't going to rise. Uh, and we've been so successful in doing that, that that essentially we've, uh, you know, not not totally solved the problem, but put ourselves in a position where it would be very hard to, to drive up inflation. Uh, and And that's piece number one. The second piece, which we haven't talked about, is that uh, what happened over the last couple of years was not just that the government put too much money into the economy. There's another big piece of the story, uh, which is that uh, the supply of goods and services uh, was constricted uh, by the pandemic, which went on a lot longer than people expected. So if you look at the inflation data, it's the delta wave. Uh, you know, when we once again go into a partial shutdown, 
that that really hits things and really, you know, just you've got all this money sloshing around and all of a sudden, once again, you can't go to restaurants, you can't go on vacation, you can't. And, and so, you know, you've got this dynamic where on the one hand, we're putting too much money into the economy. And on the other hand, we're limiting the things that you can spend it on. Uh, and now we have another wave of that with with Ukraine and Russia uh, constricting the supplies of food and oil around the world. So, you know, that is something uh, that, uh, you know, we didn't anticipate. But coming back to the question of what I got wrong, it was in the realm of possibility. And so to, to look, you know, to go into it and say this is impossible was wrong. Uh, there were possibilities that I didn't countenance and that I should have countenanced it. And the way that that argument should have been made was to say, listen, I don't think there's a very high chance of inflation, and here's why. But there are things that could happen in the world. We Supply shocks are not a new idea. Uh, and, and if we have supply shocks, you know, we could have uh, inflation under those circumstances. Right. Every, every circumstance is a unique circumstance. And when there are uh, cataclysms, we use phrases like perfect storms, but it seems perfect storms happen quite more frequently than the phrase would imply. But I want to go back to the idea of the economic consensus. It just strikes me, as you know, I read your book and in a sentence, the thesis could be that for the last 50 years, the economic consensus has been wrong. And that is what brought us to this terrible place. No? Yes. Uh, I, I think that's a very valid uh, reading of the book. I think there's a distinction between economic theory and the way that economists, if you're talking about like, do economists look at the economy and understand what's happening with unemployment or inflation or these things like their ability to to map those dynamics, I think, you know, has real value. Uh, some of their theories about the way the economy works were have been wrong. And uh, I think it's valid to say, well, you put too much faith in this theory uh, and it turned out to be wrong. I think that's a very, very fair critique. For you, for others, do you think excessive concern over inflation became something of a synecdoche of all that's wrong with the current economy? I, I think, yeah, I think that probably is a good point. I think, you know, it became sort of because it so often was the focus of the public debate. Uh, it was so often sort of the flashpoint issue, the sort of the easily handled uh, center of, of these various, you know, perspectives on how the economy works. I think probably it is the case that you know, uh, differences hardened beyond the point that they should have. Uh, and, and it came to feel like, you know, arguing about inflation was a proxy for arguing about a lot of other things. I think there probably is truth to that. Yeah. I appreciate you doing this interview now, and I appreciate the uh, tenor and tone and the uh, accountability, but why not do it in the pages of the New York Times? I've read what you wrote since then, and there there have been references, but not a, a, a full accounting or taking on what you, but more importantly, so many other economists got wrong. I mean, I think it's an interesting idea. We continue to write about inflation. I don't know that, uh, you know, sort of examining what I got wrong. I, I appreciate your interest in it. I don't know how widely, you know, the general public cares to hear what's wrong with my mind in particular. I think our focus is on, you know, the... Well, don't you think your mind rep represents, you know, some large swath of economics thinking and the uh, economics establishment, at least, you know, certainly what's driving a lot of the thinking of the Democratic Party? I don't know that the economics establishment wants to elect me as their spokesperson. Um, <laughs> but listen, yeah, I mean, I think I'm grappling with a set of issues that a lot of people have been grappling with. Uh, my mistakes were certainly not mine alone. A lot of other people had sort of a similar intellectual trajectory through this period, uh, made similar mistakes for similar reasons. And, and I do think that's interesting. And, and uh, you know, perhaps it is something that I ought to grapple with in print. Last question. Um, how 
might you change your approach on this or other issues based on, you know, this pretty big whiff? I, I mean, I think, you know, that the lesson here for me, one big takeaway for me is just that, you know, you can't be overconfident about your conclusions. I think, you know, if analytically you reach the conclusion that inflation is not a likely consequence or that it, it is, uh, you know, a worthwhile risk, uh, one can say that without going out to the point of saying, you know, this is this isn't going to happen where certainty is is not uh, you ought not to have certainty about what's going to happen next in the economy. And uh, I think, you know, I was guilty of the sin of overconfidence here in my writing. And, and that's an important lesson. Bean Yamin Applebaum, lead writer on business and economics for The New York Times, where he covers lots of issues, inflation being one of them. I really mean this. Thank you so much. I thought it was uh gracious of you, even more so than going in. Yeah, my pleasure. I think understanding where we went wrong is really valuable. So thanks for having me on. And now the spiel. In a story out of San Francisco last week, a teacher returned to the classroom after a five-week absence culminating in an apology for teaching what she dubbed, quote, a tactile lesson involving raw cotton in an effort to get the students to understand the difficulty of manually processing cotton prior to the invention of Eli Whitney's cotton gin. The teacher had brought in actual cotton plants so the students could feel them and examine their harsh, not thorns, but bristles in order to get a more accurate idea of what picking cotton must actually have been like during the period of slavery. Some parents were shocked, that is the word used in an article by Jill Tucker in the San Francisco Chronicle. The school responded by apparently disciplining the teacher. She was out of school for weeks and she only began teaching again after she issued an apology that contained the sentence, quote, while this lesson was sourced from reliable sources after conferring with the administration and hearing many of the student reflections, I realized that this lesson was not culturally responsive and had the potential to cause harm. While it was sorting through these questions, if there was harm, if the harm was mediated by the benefits conferred by a lesson I certainly never myself experienced, but might have benefited from, another quite similar story erupted across the country. Here is Precious Tross, whose seventh grade daughter, Janicia, was handed Yes Cotton, as reported by WXXI, Rochester, New York. My daughter was looking to the floor. She should not have to have experienced something like that. That is a mockery. That is disrespectful. You do not put our kids in any situation like that when you know our history. That hurts me to the core. There are major differences between the two cases. In Rochester, the lesson reportedly was accompanied by the white teacher requiring the black students to call him Massa, and he even, one student claimed, called him Boy. That teacher is on leave while the district investigates. And if that seems way over the line, there was a story from two years ago out of Tom's River, New Jersey, where a teacher did the cotton lesson but added the sounds of whips and kicked the students. So those, the last two, clearly are lessons that should not be taught or even teachers that cannot be trusted to handle sensitive matters when teaching young people full stop. Maybe the parents, or perhaps just parent, 
who objected in San Francisco was primed by these or other similar nationally reported stories or other lessons involving cotton. So they interceded or objected to their own story in their own school, and it seemed to be a lesson that was taught with greater care than the other ones. Or maybe there's no such thing as an appropriate level of care if we're speaking of African-American students in the class with a non-African-American teacher, as was the case in all these incidents. I have to say that a tactile lesson on the specifics of the cash crop that was so intimately intertwined with the story of slavery seems like a valuable lesson to me. I read the comments on the San Francisco Chronicle website and on the Bay Area Reddit thread Now, I don't know, maybe this Reddit thread is populated by people who are of a particular mindset, who are always looking to be outraged, but I looked at other things they talked about. They seemed pretty reasonable. And on this issue, I read 50 comments on Reddit, and literally 100% of those comments thought the lesson was useful and non-trauma-inducing. On the message boards of the San Francisco Chronicle itself, which first reported the story, 100% of the comments were supportive of the teacher, though the way the paper formats its website and its comments, I was unsure I got to all the comments. So this led me to believe that there is some inappropriate teaching going on in some schools on this issue, but in another specific school, this one in San Francisco, there was actually an inappropriate punishment. However, the story, and later the Chronicle's podcast, quoted an educational expert, Hassan Jeffries, a history teacher at Ohio State, who is also the faculty director for the K-12 Teacher Institute on American Slavery. Here's what Jeffries had to say on the Fifth in Mission podcast. When you don't teach history fully, even the difficult parts, even the parts that make us uncomfortable, then you are violating those core principles that all teachers should embrace. You are, in fact, committing educational malpractice. Exactly. Even though it might be troubling to some to tell the full story, you have to tell this. Otherwise, you're not doing your job as an educator. It was good to see Jeffries agreeing with basic principles I share. But wait, in the article, Jeffries was quoted as saying, any kind of simulation, any kind of recreation, any kind of that hands-on kind of teaching just pushes you into the area of re-trauma, traumatizing students, and there are better ways to go about it. So even though Jeffrey spent most of his time on the podcast excoriating the forces of ignorance that would seek to avoid teaching the horrors of slavery out of the fear that it would make some people or members of the class uncomfortable, when it came to this specific lesson, Jeffrey said the introduction of actual cotton went too far. You can imagine in a mixed race class, white children in the playground or in the cafeteria, you know, talking about, yeah, you need to go back and pick that cotton, right? I mean, so... All of that has to be taken into consideration because the trauma isn't just what may occur in the moment in the classroom, but what that then gives permission to other children to do. Okay, few things here. A, you're using an extremely capacious definition of trauma, and B, the word permission. Literally, no one gave permission. If that were said by a student to another student, it would literally be impermissible. The offending student would get in trouble. A kid might use anything that's said in the classroom to insult another kid. The solution isn't to avoid saying everything in the classroom. Kids can be clever in their cruelty, and that line of reasoning would argue for simply avoiding the topic of slavery because, you know, that's a lesson plan that could, in some hands or mouths, turn into a slur. 
That, by the way, is 180 degrees of what Jeffries wants. Jeffries ended with another one of those statements that seemed for a second to reflect exactly how I think of the situation, but at the end stung me with the contradiction. There has to be a little grace given, right? Especially in this moment where teachers are being beat up, right, for the wrong reasons. And it's like, okay, we understand this came from a place of good intentions. Now, how can we do this better? You ain't kicked out the club, right? You're still in the club. We're just going to work together to do it a little better because we have to teach this. And we can't surrender to those who will look to this and say, aha, you don't even know how to teach it. So it's better off if we don't do it at all. We just have to do it better. But of course, the lesson is that this is a third rail. Of course, all teachers are going to be extremely wary of doing this or covering this in any way other than reading from a pre-approved, pre-written text. In short, not to do teaching. This is not just insensitive teachers who misteach this lesson. It's sensitive teachers, a teacher in San Francisco who is described in coverage as excellent and beloved, who mistaught this lesson because there seems to be no way this lesson can be taught without objection and without consequence. Every teacher in America who hears the story has got to say, I am not going to risk it. I am not going to risk being creative. I am not going to risk correction. I will teach this area as if any misstep, real or perceived, will get me suspended, and if my name gets out, humiliated. Prudence, in this case, demands that one adopt a defensive crouch. And risk avoidance becomes the highest educational priority. Even if you think you're being thorough and imparting knowledge and really reaching the kids, if anyone in that class or their parent takes it the wrong way, the school district will punish you. And also, we just heard America's leading expert on the pedagogy of slavery will weigh in and say you did something wrong. Well, I suppose you could argue, at least we know now, never to bring cotton into a classroom. And that's a good thing. I, you, you might think, I could understand the argument, yes, it is a good thing because exposing students to discomfort is thought of as traumatizing, but the reverberations go well beyond show and tell with a crop. Schools need to have strict rules that they follow, and you as a teacher need to adhere to them meticulously, lest a member of the community get offended. In Florida, we call that repressive. In San Francisco, that's just a sensible, sensitive way to avoid trauma. Let's be fair and not overdramatic. The teacher's career wasn't ruined. She did wisely choose to remain anonymous because letting people know her real name would surely bring unwarranted wrath. But of course, the lesson is that in this area, the teaching of American slavery, it's so fraught, it's just not worth it. It's not just the cotton plant itself that has bristles that can cut you. So be careful. You know what? Just stay away entirely. And of course, that has got to be the conclusion for any teacher who wants to keep his or her job. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.